0: Well, as you well know, social media is changing our world. In the field of traditional media, which means newspapers and news shows, social media has upended a long-held belief. When you turn on the news, or when you pick up a newspaper, or if you go to your CNN app, you're expecting an onslaught of bad news because that's what you get when you go to the news. That is their key strategy, in fact. If it bleeds it leads. Bad news sells. In fact, the sadder, the better. Good news is no news unless it's being shared person-to-person rather than newscaster-to-couch potato. Thanks to social media, information is being spread and monitored in different ways, and so researchers are discovering some new rules. For instance. Good news can spread faster and farther than disasters and sob stories. And the main reason for this is that when you share a story with your friends or your peers, you care about the way that they react to you. You don't want to be perceived as the friend who's depressing and has negative and sad news. Another reason that good news can spread faster than bad news through traditional media versus social media is because in social media land, we get to talk about our favorite subject of all, ourselves. You know, who doesn't want to talk about their own wonderfulness on Facebook? That's good news for everyone, right? People love to hear good news. We love to share good news, but are we stuck only sharing good news about ourselves? You know, as Christ followers, we have some news to share that isn't about us and that is truly good news. We get to share God's good news about Jesus. This is the final message in this series, Storytellers Communicating with a Sense of Urgency. In the first week, we explored our motivation for sharing Jesus with people, and then last week, we took on the first of two stories, learning how to tell our story, tracking our life before Christ, the point of decision when we got to know Jesus, and then our life after getting to know Jesus. And this week we're going to be looking at the second story that we need to tell. This is God's story, or as we've titled this message, God's Good News. When it comes to sharing Jesus with somebody, this story has the power to change lives. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul talks of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus, or God's story, or God's good news, and he says that he's not ashamed of it but that he's boldly going to proclaim it because that message is the power of God to bring salvation to people who put their faith in Jesus. In other words, we've got to become storytellers because people need to hear the powerful story that can bring salvation. That's the story that we're studying today. We need to tell that story. I want to draw your attention to a resource that you can use that we affectionately call our Little Blue Book. Lynn just mentioned it in the video. This is a tool that you can use to share God's story. Now, a team of us have been working for a very long time to update this Little Blue Book, and so here for the first time is our new Little Blue Book. And two things probably stand out to you right away about this Little Blue Book. First, you might be thinking that the old one was a lot bluer, And so it deserved the nickname. But as you'll see, as we proceed through the pages, there's enough blue to warrant the nickname. And we just like to stick to the way we do things. So we're just calling it the little blue book, okay? And second, you're going to notice a different title, a new title on the cover. The former blue book said, you can know God personally on the front cover, whereas this one says, God's good news. And here's the deal on this. You know, the language of a personal relationship with God is wonderful, And it is retained throughout this book. But this phrase has been batted around in our culture at large a lot. And it's come to be mocked to a certain degree. And what we're describing in this book is God's good news. So we thought, why don't we just say that outright? Also, this title gives you a bit of a hook, a lead into a conversation. Because people want to know then what is God's good news. They want to know what it is. So this is our new little blue book. And it's a great tool. I commend it to you because it's portable, it's visual, it's memorable, it's giftable. Not a word, but you can give it to people. And it's developed for you already. And so you can do what Lynn did in that video that we saw a few minutes ago by giving it to somebody so that they can share God's story with somebody. You can, you can give it to a friend who needs to be rescued, who needs Jesus, and you can have them read that, and then you could plan a time to get together and discuss it. You could give a little blue book to a friend after an outreach event, a Wow Weekend, or some other special event at Christ Community as a follow-up. You could actually take the blue book and just sit down with a friend and walk through it in its entirety with them. This is our key tool, a key tool for sharing God's good news, and we want everyone here to be confident, to be in a position to confidently walk through that story, to tell that story. And so, we're going to walk through God's story today as it's presented in this this little blue book. And so, if you're a Christ follower here today, then I want to encourage you two things. Both to nourish your soul on this good news... God's good news is not just something that we hear one time and then we receive it and then we move on. This is our source of life because God is holy and we're sinful and Jesus is our only hope every day. So soak this message up into your hearts because Jesus is so good to us and pay close attention so that you can walk through this with somebody else, so that you can pay attention to the tips and illustrations that I give, ways to train you to be able to use this tool with someone who needs Jesus. All right? If you're a a Christ follower, nourish your soul on this and pay close attention to some training stuff. And if you're not a Christ follower, then I want to encourage you to weigh carefully what you hear presented today. Because God's good news has the power to bring salvation to you today. And before we're done, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to it. Now, I prefer to start conversations about God with a question or with several questions because it typically engages people and it gets things moving. And so as a natural connection point to our blue book, I might ask the question, if God was going to talk to you, do you think he'd be sharing bad news with you? Or good news with you? Most people think of God like our newscasters. He's only got bad, bad news for me. But God actually has good news to share about Jesus. Grab your weekly welcome. You'll see that we've summarized this God's good news into a five-part outline, five acts, so that we can understand and share God's story, His good news. Jot this down. Act number one, divine creation. Divine creation. Now, the first line out of the gates in this little blue book says, God created us to enjoy a personal relationship with him and a purposeful life. Is this the way that you think about God? God? One author has said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's because what you think about God connects to every other area of life. What you think about you, what you think about others, what you think about the world. Most people wouldn't dream of connecting the words God and enjoy in the same sentence. But according to the Bible, God created us. God made us so that we could be connected with him in a relationship marked by joy and purpose. God created us to enjoy a personal relationship with him and a purposeful life. Don't let the simplicity of that statement mask how profound and incredible it truly is. In fact, just saying that reminds me of a helpful tip for walking through this blue book with somebody. You know, move slowly, assuming that, that your friend has never heard this before. You know, For a lot of us, this is very normal. But for other people, this is a really big deal to think of God in these terms. Uh, about a year ago, I had a conversation with a college student who was wrestling with this very issue. She came to talk to me because she wanted to understand who God was. And she began to describe her way of thinking of God, her image of God. And it, was, it dawned on me that this was a combination of religious teachings and cultural ideas and even her own desires. And so as she was describing this God to me, I kept thinking she's going to be really surprised by the God revealed in the Bible. So shortly after she finished talking, I started talking about the God revealed in the Bible. And I used a phrase very similar to that we find in this blue book. God created us to enjoy a personal relationship with him and a purposeful life. And as we talked for a little bit about creation and some interesting stuff about the how of creation, some good conversation about that, I moved on to underscore one of the major implications of creation. Life is meaningful Because God is behind it. Life is meaningful because God is behind it. And then I connected that directly to these thoughts about a relationship with him and how our lives have meaning and purpose individually because God is behind it. You see, it took some time for her expectations to shift because this isn't the God that she thought he was. See, this can be a big deal to some folks, and so we've got to move a little bit slowly. As you're going through this blue book with people, you just take the time to unpack this statement about who God is and what he's done by drawing attention to some of the other statements and verses on the next page. First, God wants us to know him. Jesus said in John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. According to Jesus' words, knowing God and his representative, Jesus himself, is eternal life. God went to great lengths sending Jesus so that we could know him. Second, God has a purpose for each of us. The Bible says this wonderfully in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God made you. God knows you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. That's incredible. Now inevitably, as you're walking these thoughts through with somebody, as you're talking through this blue book, you might rub up against a little bit of dissonance. One of the things that we wanted to do was to pose a question at the end of every section that would kind of move the story on, recognizing that tension and moving it on. Here's what I mean in this specific instance. At this point, we're naturally wondering if God created us and life is meaningful and he wants us to know him and he's got a great purpose for us, so much so that he knows every day of our lives before we live them, then what gives if if God is like this, then why is my life like this? If God is who you say he is, then why aren't I friends with him? Or in the words of this blue book, why is it that many people don't have a close relationship with God? Act two, sinful separation. We turn the page and we find the answer to that question. Many people don't have a close relationship with God because our sin separates us from God. Now this is where the train goes off the tracks. And I mean that in two ways. The first one you're probably expecting, the story actually just takes a turn for the worse with the introduction of sin and death. But I also mean the train goes off the tracks for people at this point, the people that we're talking to. Because someone might say, hey, I thought we were talking about good news here. Your, your little blue book, which is actually a little bit more white than it is blue, by the way. Your little blue book said this was going to be God's good news, and now you've hidden this bad news in there, right? This is your your trick to kind of cover up the bad news. And my imaginary friend has a point. There's no question that with the introduction of sin and death, we're touching on bad news, but I want to quickly reply by underlining even the good news in this statement. Think of it like this. God has been honest with us, In diagnosing our disease, God has been truthful with us in telling us what's wrong. In fact, His Word tells us what the problem is, who has the problem, and what happens as a result of this problem. Now, take a look at these crucial questions, their answers, and the verses that follow. First, what is sin? God is very clear sin is disobeying God by going our own way and living for ourselves. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Sin includes the things that we have done that don't please God and the things that we haven't done that would please God. We just finished a series recently on the seven deadly sins and we covered all of those sins. Gluttony and lust, and greed, and pride, and sloth, and wrath, and envy. Lots of people came up at the end of that series and said, I'm I'm captivated by some of those sins. I find myself regularly in that pattern. Engaging in that stuff is sinful, but not engaging in worship, and service, and caring for people, and loving God, and caring for the poor is sin as well. Second, who has sinned? Now, this is a simple question, but it's a hard one for us to answer honestly. The answer is all of us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have this sin, disease, and its symptoms or its expressions characterize our lives. You notice the standard laid out in this verse, we fall short of God's glory which consists of his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Our sin, disobeying God to go our own way, separates us from God so that we can't relate to him in the way that we were made to. And Finally, what happens as a result of our sin Sin cuts us off from God, the giver of life, and as a result, sin's penalty is spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Listen to these verses from the Bible. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins, a synonym for iniquities, have hidden his face from you. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And so as the blue book illustration makes plain, sin points down, it results in death. Now, here's what I've discovered in the course of conversations with people. Lots of folks are inclined to recognize or admit that they sin here or they sin there, but not so much to recognize the fact that they are a sinner or that the consequence for their sin should be as drastic as physical and spiritual and eternal death. Our evangelism pastor, Andy Doyle, has said that people need to treat sin the way that that people in AA treat their problem. You know, people need to say about sin, hi, my name is Jameson or your name, fill in the blank, and I'm a sinner. Hi, my name is Jameson and I'm a sinner. So how do we help them, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members? How do we help them to draw that conclusion? Well, you depend on the scriptures that we're reading and I would encourage you to read every single one of the scriptures as you go through this little blue book with somebody. And we pray like crazy that God in his grace would open people's eyes and soften their hearts but you can also illuminate these kinds of things with some illustrations. And I want to share one of them with you that you could use in the course of a conversation with somebody at this point to help them understand the difference between just admitting a sin versus admitting that I'm sinful. This is a bit humorous and a bit silly but it's helpful okay so let's say that you're hanging out at my house you might have heard this by the way before you're hanging out at my house one morning and I recognize that you haven't had any breakfast and I feel bad about that and so I say to you hey you know what I want to make you an omelet a three-egg omelet and you think to yourself that's so generous of him what a kind kind person and you've heard of my astounding omelet making skills and so you're getting excited. So we're chatting it up and I'm preparing this omelet. I grab all of the different ingredients out of the refrigerator. I get the green onions and the cheese. I get I get the peppers I get all of these different pieces, some ham. I get all of it out, and then I go in to get the eggs, and I pull out my carton, and I've only got two, but I realized that I told you I wanted to make you a three-egg omelet, and so I'm feeling bad. So I go going through all of my refrigerator, looking everywhere to see if I have another egg, and lo and behold, I do find another egg. Now, it wasn't in the carton. In fact, it looks like it's been in my refrigerator for several weeks at this point. It's fuzzy. It's green. It's kind of slimy. But I grab it, I crack it, and I throw it in with everything else. I mix it up, I make the omelet, I throw it on a plate, and I hand it to you. Are you going to eat that omelet? No, you're not going to eat that omelet. That's disgusting. One bad egg ruins that omelet. Similarly, one sin makes us sinners. Sinners who have unplugged from the giver of life. And as a result, face death. Why don't we have a close relationship with God? Because our sin separates us from God. So how do we deal with that separation? Act number three, human resolution. How do we deal with our separation from God? Simply put, we respond to this separation from God in a variety of ways. Now, this is a great place for all of us to refer back, or maybe for the first time, to your story. The stuff that we put together last week to describe the changes that Jesus has made since you came to know him. Chances are, your story will fit into one of the categories that's outlined in this blue book. Uh, My story fits into the second category. I I was trying to... To stuff down my separation from God by ignoring it and pursuing anything related to my own selfish desires. I had been raised in a a Christian home. We went to church. My parents, godly people, introduced me to Jesus when I was young. But I decided I wanted to go my own direction. I didn't want to follow after Jesus. I wanted to make my life all about me. And so adopting the practices and priorities of my surrounding culture as a high school kid, I wanted to make it all about me, exalt myself, and be well-known. And so in my sophomore year of high school, I decided to make a change. I dyed my hair, I changed my wardrobe, I got my ear pierced in the cartilage, which is where you did it, to be cool. And then I started to hang out with all of the cool kids on a direct route to popularity. I just wanted to make it all about me. Now that may not sound super crazy, oh my gosh, what an awfully sinful life, but I went my own Way in my sin and self centeredness, which was a direct and sinful affront to God who made me to make Him known, not me. So I was stuffing down God's desire, God's purpose for my life by making it all about me. I responded to this separation from God by ignoring that separation, by pursuing fame. My story helps to illustrate, helps to flesh out one of these areas. Your story that you can share can help to flesh out the options as you summarize them as you go through this blue book. There are three common routes for our response to this separation. First, we may deny that we're sinners or that our sin separates us from God. You know, as far as we're concerned, there is no separation from God. Everything is all right. This is the I'm okay, God's okay position. There is no problem. But 1 John 1, verses 6 and 8 say, If we claim to have fellowship with him, referring to God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Second approach. You may ignore the chasm by pursuing careers and possessions, relationships, etc. Again, this was my option. I knew that there was a problem, but my strategy was to go after whatever I thought would be most fulfilling. In some ways, a lot of us are trying to numb ourselves so that we don't have to deal with our separation from God, this huge void in our lives. But Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Third, We may try to bridge the chasm by doing good deeds or living a moral life or going to church. Now this is a popular approach in which we imagine all of our good deeds being able to outweigh all of our sinning. Surely I've done enough to please God. Surely I will earn his favor, right? Let me give you another illustration at this point to insert. In the course of your conversation with somebody, just to help to underscore this moral effort approach and the fact that, that it doesn't work, you say, Hey, imagine we set up a contest and we wanted to see if somebody could jump from New England to England. And so we grabbed a couple of people, we grabbed a normal guy named Jameson, and he was able to jump eight feet out and slammed into the water. Not a very good effort. But but then we had another person, this spry girl shows up, and she jumps 13 feet, a killer jump, a good effort out there, and she slams into the water. And then we brought out an Olympic long jumper, and this guy was able to break his own record. He jumped 28 feet out, huge. Now, which, which one of us got the furthest? Well, the Olympic long jumper got the furthest, but he didn't make the goal, right? Of course not. This is how the moral effort approach works. Yeah, We have our moral effort approach, but it's deadly because it constantly makes us wonder how we're doing. It also deludes us into thinking that sin isn't nearly as serious as God's, God says that it is. And most importantly, it doesn't work. And Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Now, interestingly, this is, in fact, the good news to underline in this point. God, listen to this, God doesn't demand our effort. Instead, he, the offended party because of our sin, has done something to deal with our separation from him. I love this. Act for gracious salvation. What can be done about our separation from God, we're asking ourselves? God Bridged our separation through his son, Jesus. This is really, really good news. In fact, you could string together all of the good news at this point to say this God is the creator. And so our lives have meaning and purpose, and they're rightly ordered when we relate to him. Even in our sin, God has been honest and truthful with us. He didn't look the other way, but he diagnosed our disease. God doesn't demand our effort, but he graciously offers us salvation through Jesus. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God took the initiative to save sinful, rebellious humanity by sending Jesus. Ah, it's such good news. Every single one of us on all four of our campuses will need to determine at some point in our lives how we're going to respond to Jesus because Jesus is utterly unique. You know, Jesus is the center of history. Jesus is the focus of the entire Bible. Jesus is the heartbeat of our mission. Every single one of us who decides to be a storyteller has the burden to share the good news about Jesus because he's the heart of our mission. We all, individually, every single one of us, has to deal with Jesus. His salvation is an offer of new life and forgiveness, but it's also, catch this, it's also an offer of himself to prize him and to surrender to him and to follow him. As guys, you're talking with somebody through this blue book and you're talking about Jesus. Make sure to press home the uniqueness of Jesus. And we help you do that. As you look at this next page, you're going to see three really significant questions, all of which focus on how Jesus is able to bridge our separation. First question says, why Jesus? Why him? Well, Being fully man, Jesus served as our representative in paying for our sin. Jesus stood in our place before God. Being fully God, Jesus' payment was of infinite worth. 1 Timothy 2 5 and 6. For there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Second, what did Jesus' death accomplish? It bridged the separation between God and us by paying sin's penalty, which is death. The Bible says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And third, what significance is Jesus' resurrection? By rising from the dead, Jesus proved his power over sin and death. It's a victory that he now offers to us. Romans 6 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We're all separated from God because of our sin, which leads to death. But God, who is rich in mercy, bridged our separation through his son, Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sin and offers us new life. So how can we cross this bridge to receive salvation from Jesus? Finally, act five, total transformation. Life change. In order to bring our salvation, in order to bridge this separation, to be reconciled to God, to receive forgiveness and new life, we have to undergo a total transformation. We must put our faith in Jesus, the Savior and King. We need to put our faith in Jesus because only Jesus, again, exclusively and utterly unique, only Jesus can restore a relationship with God, the giver of life. John writes, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We must put our faith in Jesus because only faith, not our efforts, can connect us to Jesus. And so Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So our response is to put our faith in Jesus. Now I'm sure that you can guess at this point or you can begin to anticipate some of the things that you might, yourself might be thinking or what your friend might be thinking at this point. They might be thinking this is all well and good but it all depends on how you define faith, right? You know, There are some ways to think about faith that's just a mental assent to something. And so you can have faith in just about anything. You can have faith in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or Jesus as long as it doesn't make a real difference in your life on the ground in the day in and day out. But that's not how the Bible talks about faith. You know, what is genuine faith? Genuine faith is a whole person response to God's good news, a whole person response to God's good news. So genuine faith involves our mind. We've got to acknowledge the stuff that we've just been walking through together. We've got to acknowledge that Jesus is God's son. We've got to acknowledge that we're sinners and deserve punishment and that we can't save ourselves. We've got to acknowledge that Jesus' death and resurrection paid for our sins and proved his power over death and over sin. Genuine faith involves our mind. Genuine faith involves our heart. We've got to renounce sin and embrace Jesus, wanting him more than our sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Genuine faith involves our mind, our heart, and finally our will. We must surrender to Jesus as Savior and King. Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, another word for king, and you believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Genuine faith is a whole person response, mind, heart, and will to God's good news. One more helpful illustration, I think, at this point is to draw attention to this distinction between these two kinds of faith just mental assent or whole person response. And so what you do is you just encourage this person to think with you about the things that we automatically, most of us, put our faith in God for anyway. So you take out a couple things from your pockets. You take out your wallet, and you take out your phone. And in your wallet, you dig through and you find your driver's license. You take your driver's license out, and you throw it on the table, and you say, hey, this is my driver's license, and this represents traveling. I trust God. I believe God. I have faith in God that he'll protect me when I'm traveling. And you dig through your wallet and you pull out your insurance card. You throw that on the table. So this is my insurance card. It represents my health. I believe God is going to help me to be healthy. God is going to take care of me. I trust him for that. I believe him for that. I have faith in God for that you pull out your cell phone. We don't have pictures in our wallets much anymore, so you pull out your cell phone, and you flip through to pictures of friends and your family members, and you say, these are my friends and family members, and I trust, I believe, I have faith that God is going to take care of them. And you go to your bank app, and that's representative of my money, and I believe God's going to provide for me. You put your cell phone down on the table. You got all this stuff, and you say, I believe, I have faith, I trust God in relation to several of these things. But then you just ask the question, what's missing? I've got a lot of things that I have faith in God for, but what's missing? Me. My actual life. I like to literally get up onto the table as well. Because I need to have a whole person response to God's good news. That's what genuine faith is. Mind, heart, and will. Have you responded with genuine faith? You know, we want to help our friends, our coworkers, neighbors, family members to have a clear sense of where they are in relation to God's good news. And so as you turn the page, we simply ask the question, where are you? you know, some people will not be ready to respond to God's good news. And it's completely appropriate to ask, why not? And then to explore some next steps to help them get to know Jesus better and to put their faith in him. But other people will be ready to respond to God's good news by putting their faith in Jesus. And if so, you just simply flip the page and you read through this prayer with them and ask them to pray it as a commitment to follow Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus. And you walk through these next steps for growth. In a nutshell... God's good news is that God is holy and we're sinful and Jesus is our only hope and we've got to put our faith in him. We've summarized it here in five acts of divine creation and sinful separation, human resolution, gracious salvation, and total transformation. And I want to simply at this point plead with you. If you're not a Christ follower, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't experienced this salvation, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you're not up on the table, put your faith in Christ today. Turn from your sin and receive salvation from Jesus, forgiveness and new life, even himself. If that's you, I want to encourage you to go to the Welcome Center at your campus and discuss this with somebody. Talk to somebody about putting your faith in Jesus. Today. And I want to plead with you as well if you're a Christ follower then you're a part of a mission of making disciples, and that starts with introducing people to God's good news, the good news about Jesus. And so for the first time today, we're making this new updated blue book, God's Good News, available for us to take and to use to share with people who need Christ. And so as you leave today, by faith, I want you to grab one or two or three or as many as you think that you're going to use so that you can take them and use them to share God's good news even in the coming week.